Welcome to Graceway Baptist Church and our midweek service. We have been looking at uh, Psalms for quite a while, and uh, we've been going through them in random order. But it's uh, been, for me, it's been a lot of fun to study some of these that I really haven't studied or preached on before. And um, some things have been a, a reminder of things that I already knew and things that I'd learned previously. And that's, I think, what Psalms is designed to do. It, after all, was the, the hymnal. And uh, I'm really glad that when Brother Dale leads us in songs, that it's not just a connection, a collection. Ah, where'd that come from? A collection of brand new songs every week. Man, that'd be tough because sometimes we get a new song. And I've told you before, I like learning new songs because they make me think. I can sing some old hymns that I grew up on and I don't have to think about the words at all. I know them. They come out of my mouth while I'm making my grocery list or anything else. And I don't really worship when I'm singing them. Some old songs are kind of nice because they bring back memories. But that can be a trap and a trick because I may be thinking of grandma and grandpa and not be thinking of Christ. So if the old song stirs your memory to remind you of Christ and what he has done and how he worked in your life, and maybe how he did it through grandma and grandpa or other people, then that's fine. But I don't always do that. Uh, I fall short even in that. I mean, it's possible to sin even in a worship service, isn't it? I like uh, to think that new songs cause me to concentrate I have to concentrate on the words. I have to concentrate on the, uh, the melody and the rhythms and the tempo. I can't just take off and sing it at my own speed. We've got to keep up with Brother Dale and the orchestra. Um, but at the same time, what I try to do with new songs is think about the words. We sang a song this past Sunday morning. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. Remember that one? And there's a line in there that uh, talks about the resurrection. And it says, the angels roar for Christ the King. I haven't been able to get over that since we first sang, uh, have sung that song. First sang that song. Um, get my grammar at least closer. Um, that is amazing. Because I thought about what it must have been like for the angels as they saw the Creator being nailed to a cross. As they saw the Creator become sin and be judged by the Father, to see the Father and the Holy Spirit turn their backs on Him, so much so that God the Son, the Creator, cries out, My God, God the Father, My God, God the Holy Spirit, why have you forsaken Me? That must have made the angels' jaws drop. Why is this happening? What is going on here? And I can only imagine at this point, but I wonder, were they waiting for Jesus to cry out to them and command them to save him, to rescue him? Jesus said, all I have to do is say the word and my father will send legions of angels. And he's not calling for them. Can you imagine what the angels must have thought? When is he going to call us? Why isn't he calling for us? And the word from heaven was, stand down. You're going to let this happen? Nobody's going to intervene? 
We're not going to go in and rescue our creator, our maker, our Lord, our boss. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them? And then the unthinkable, the unthinkable happens. He says, it is finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bows his head. He goes limp, in other words, and dies. Can you even begin to imagine what the angels must have thought? Now, I'm sure that in the in-between time, when the body was dead and it was laying in the grave, but the spirit was alive, Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so there is, I'm sure, interaction and all of that. But can you imagine on that third day when life comes back into that body and Jesus gets up, folds the grave clothes up neatly, rolls the stone away, and then goes out. I kind of like to think of it. He rolled the stone away and then went out the back door because he didn't need the stone rolled away to leave. He just needed that so we could get in, right? The soldiers then are as dead men, and uh, he doesn't go to them like he did the Apostle John in Revelation and touch them and comfort them. He leaves them like that. And uh, he takes off the resurrected, resurrected Christ. And that song makes me think of the angels roar for Christ the King. Can you imagine the cheer? I like to go to football games and I think it's neat when our side cheers. Man, I despise it when the other side cheers. And we all just sit down and the other side roars for their team. That's not a good sign. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the devil and his demons when the angels, when the good guys, they roar for Christ the King? See, new songs do that to me. They make me think. But I wouldn't want to do new songs every time, every week. I like remembering. And so these psalms were the Hebrew national hymnal, and they were the psalms that they would sing. Now, sometimes there were new psalms that were added to this. David wasn't the only author of the Psalms. Some of them were written by Moses, which means way, way back when Moses was here, there, were, there was this group of Psalms. And then as other people were inspired to write them, there were new ones that came along and they had to learn them. And it made them think as they did this. But they didn't throw away the old. You don't want to do that. You want to Go through the old ones that you are familiar with so that you learn and remember. Then you want some new ones so that you can not only stir up what you already know, but you can learn new truths. Well, that's what happens as we go through the Psalms. Some things you already know, some things you're learning, and you need a good mix of both. Now, last week we asked the question, why? And we looked at what the Bible says about the lost world and their governments, their nations, their emperors, their kings, their presidents, their dictators, their fuhrers, whoever it might be and whoever you study, why are they gathering together to, con to conspire against the Lord? What is going on here? Why do they think that they can do this? Because it's a fruitless, empty, it's a vain thing, isn't it? What's, what's the point of doing something that's going to lose? What's the point of doing something that is undoable when you think about it? 
And that's what the writer of this psalm is writing down. And the Apostle Peter tells us in the book of Acts that it was David who wrote this psalm. David is just like, I'm watching all of these people try to overthrow God. You might as well ask a single ant to carry a 200-pound man to his uh, queen. He can't do it. It's impossible. It's an empty, vain, fruitless, idiotic, stupid thing to do. And that's what David, that's the way he approaches in this psalm. He's not just simply saying, gee, I wonder why they do that. He's saying, why would they do that? It's an empty thing. Foolish, right? And yet every one of them has tried to do it. And they come on and on and on trying to be Christ, trying to be the world ruler, trying to overthrow the bonds and the laws and the morality of God. And David said, it is a vain thing. And it's always against the Lord and against his anointed one. In the New Testament, they uh, translate it from Greek and against his Christ. Christos is the anointed one. Well, we're going to continue on today. And we're going to notice that the psalmist says in verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. So it goes from him laughing at them to then he is angry with them and condemning them. And he will distress them in his not just displeasure, his deep displeasure. Verse 6 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So in spite of man's sinful revolt against heaven, God remains unrivaled, the sovereign Lord, and he laughs at man's feeble attempts to thwart his eternal purposes. That's by Dr. Stephen Lawson. And that's the, the thrust of these verses. When the Lord laughs, and when David asks the question, why in the world would you do such an idiotic, crazy thing? You know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, whether it's President Biden or whether it's President uh, Putin or whatever his title is in Russia or uh, the president of China or uh, a jihad or uh, a caliphate's what I was thinking of, a caliphate in the Middle East, whatever it may be in any of those, they're trying the same thing. It's always against God. And it's always, like I said before, like an ant trying to pick up a 200 pound man to carry it to its anthill and to its queen. That is the dumbest thing that you've ever done. Do you remember the very first show on Cosby where Theo is saying all of the things he's going to do and uh, the dad, Bill Cosby, is refuting those things and uh, then Theo comes and says, why can't you just accept me for who I am and you know, basically let me be myself in the audience? It's kind of funny because they kind of start to clap for him. And Cosby turns around and says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No wonder you get C's and everything. Remember that? And it was kind of a defining moment of the show. And uh, from then on, you know, you kind of knew what was going on and, and the dynamic of things. 
And it was kind of nice back in those days to actually see a father who wasn't afraid to be a father, to see parents who weren't afraid to be parents, and uh, kind of refreshing. It's sad the way things have gone in Cosby's life and were happening perhaps even then, I don't know. But uh, the show was pretty good show and the thing that he happened. Now, when David writes this psalm from verse 1 all the way down to where we finished in verse 6 here, it's as if God and David are both looking at the nations and the kings of the world and watching all of their plans, and they're going, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. And the laughter that you hear in there is not a studio audience, it's God. This is something that world leaders don't understand. And this is something that I think a lot of Christians don't understand. This is the way we ought to look at the world. If someone becomes a king or a queen or a president or a dictator or whatever they do, don't ever envy them. Feel sorry for them. Everything that they are doing and trying to do is going with the flow of this world, which the Bible tells us in this psalm is against the Lord and against his Christ. You think about the ego that's involved. You think about the plans that are involved, the wisest, the brightest, the best that are put together. If it doesn't reflect the glory of God and the will of God, then it's vain, it's useless, and it's empty, and they are ruining their lives. Now, there is the rare exception when there's a godly leader, when there's a born-again person that is leading. And the Bible says that when the uh, wicked rule, the people groan, but when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And uh, thank God there are those times. Very, very rare. Very, very rare. Even in our nation's history, um, it, it's very, very rare. And uh, we need to pray for our leaders and pray for their salvation, shouldn't we? And if we ever get a brother or sister in Christ leading our nation, we sure need to pray for them because they have a tendency to go the wrong way, don't they? Now, we need to understand some things that this is teaching us. Number one, God doesn't panic, change, or modify. Instead, he laughs. Did you expect that out of God? Those of you who believe in the sovereignty of God, those of you who believe in the immutability of God, he doesn't change. What he says, what he reveals, what he promises, what he has decreed just happens. God doesn't change. I think most of us would agree with that and uh, not have any problems with, laugh, with that, but the Bible says here that he laughs. He laughs at their feeble attempts to try to change him. He laughs at their attempts to try to change morality. He laughs at them trying to do what they want to do as if they are sovereign, as if they are powerful, as if they have anything to do with it. I've got a word for the Taliban in Afghanistan. You don't rule, and your time is limited, and God is going to speak, and right now, he laughs at you. Think about that. But I've also got a word for the President of the United States. 
About the time you think you're all that in a bag of chips and you've got a mandate from the people and you've got power and with a signature you can change all kinds of things, you don't change God and you don't change His will and you don't change salvation and you don't change morality. In fact, sign all the executive orders, sign all the bills into law you want and if they go against God the supreme being of the universe laughs. And so what are we saying here? That we look at these people and we don't see, we see their power, we see their influence, we see their riches. God says, you're pathetic. And that's the way we need to see things and to understand things. It's God who deserves our praise. He who sits, notice where? in the heavens. Oh, you may sit in the White House, and you may sit in Moscow, you may sit in Beijing, you may sit in some other place that you call the seat of power. Well, the one who's laughing at you is not an inferior who's snickering in the audience and you happen to hear him. He is the God who sits in the heavens, who rules over, who controls everything, and who sees what you are doing, and he knows your motive and he knows your heart. And he laughs at all of that because he is above you. And so these corrupt rulers have pieces of earth under their power. But God sets over the entire earth, the planet, in heaven. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You know, the unchangeableness of God is a great benefit to the people of God. And God says to the people of Israel, you better be glad I don't change because if I backed up, changed my mind, and backed out of the covenant I made with you, you would cease to exist. You'd be dust. It wouldn't be that you just are numbered like the dust and like the sand and like the stars. You'd be part of the dust. But I don't change, even though you do. I don't change, God says, and therefore you're not consumed. You know, that makes me, as a child of God, go, whew. The psalmist said, Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who could stand? See, that includes me. I'm so glad he doesn't mark my transgressions, but my transgressions are put under the blood of Christ, and they're cast as far as the east is from the west, put in the depths of the sea, and they're not brought up against me anymore. I'm so glad for that. But can I just say this? For those who don't know Christ, this is terrifying. The Lord doesn't change. He's not going to be wrathful and thundering against sin in the Old Testament and then be like a kind, old, gentle grandfather in the New. It's the same God. He's a God who doesn't change. And He's angry, the Bible says, towards sinners every day in the Bible. I'll let you look it up. We ought to put that on the church sign sometime, huh? You look at the God who not only doesn't change, but the God who, well, He smiles upon their powerless rage and goes steadily forward to the accomplishment of His plan. He solemnly declares 
that he had established his king on his holy hill of Zion, and consequently, that all their efforts must be vain. If we could look at life like that, it would change the way you post on Facebook. It would change the way that you look at the passage of laws and the rulings of courts. Is there a good and a bad in terms of leadership? Of course there is. And do I want the best in leadership? Of course I do. For myself, I mean, I still live here. I want it for my children, and I want it for my grandchildren. I don't want our Constitution to disintegrate. I don't want my grandchildren to grow up under tyranny. Of course not. Of course I want it like that. That's why Paul says we're to pray for kings and all in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. You ought to pray regularly for President Biden. You ought to pray for his salvation. Pray for Vice President Harris. Pray for her salvation. Pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would protect them. Pray for your governor. Pray for the state legislature. Pray for your senators and your congressmen. Pray for your mayor and city council. Pray for people on the school board. Pray for judges. We, we certainly ought to do that. But we also ought to look at it differently than a lost person who thinks that's it, who thinks their vote is the thing that really matters. Joseph R. Biden is the president of the, president of the United States according to the will of God. Think about that. Romans 13, you need to remember that. And that whatever he may do and whatever he doesn't do and whether I like it or whether I don't like it, I mean, I've got my opinions. And I know you've got yours and you've got a right to be wrong, but uh, that's just the way it is. We, we live like that. But we need it to be based on the word of God. And we need to think about this. No matter who the president is, no matter what he enacts, our God is the true king. And he laughs at man's attempt to try to be sovereign. And, and don't forget what we saw this past Sunday night that Paul Tripp said, every time you sin, you're trying to be God. And you're trying to be sovereign. And the Lord laughs at your feeble attempt to try to rule even your life because you just can't do it. He's got to rule your life. And the sooner you confess, get right with God and submit to him, the better off you're going to be because he is a good king. It says he holds him in derision. The definition of derision is the use of ridicule or scorn to show contempt. God is demonstrating by laughing his contempt for the corrupt, arrogant rulers of this world. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, we find a story of a guy named King Belshazzar. Well, who is he? Well, he is the one who replaced Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar died. And he's the one who has a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine in front of the people there. And when he tasted the wine, then he went a step further. And he said, hey, go get the vessels that came out of that temple to Yahweh in Judah that my father confiscated. Go get them and we'll drink wine out of them. And so those holy articles that we've been studying about on Sunday morning in Exodus, Belshazzar is taking them now to the glory of his gods and drinking wine out of all of them. Well, it's quite a party, quite a party. Commanded that the vessels of silver and gold 
that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from it. Yeah, having a party. Well, then you skip on down to Daniel 5, verses 5 through 7, and then something amazing happened. God says, I'm going to speak, and fingers of a human hand appeared, and they wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And of course, the king sees it, and he is afraid. In fact, it says in here that the king's color changed. It went pale, I'm going to assume, or maybe went gray. And uh, his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, and uh, all of that to interpret that, right? Well, then you skip on down to Daniel 5, 17. None of them could do it. The old Lay's commercial, they tried, but they couldn't do it. And so they're calling in Daniel, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And Daniel basically says, keep your gifts, keep all of your honor, but I'll go ahead and tell you, give your rewards to another. But I nevertheless will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, as saying there's someone above you, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Right? So he's kind of setting up Belshazzar, isn't he? Setting him up. And uh, said Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted to them, uh, even exalting some of them and humbling some of them. But he says, do you remember when he got too big for his britches and God took away his ability to think and reason and made him like an animal for seven years? And Nebuchadnezzar was not restored until after that seven years he extolled the king of heaven. That's a beautiful story in the fourth chapter of Daniel. And uh, he's reminding him of all of that because that is getting ready to happen to Belshazzar. And he says that what this writing really means, because you have lifted your heart up before the Lord of heaven, and you've even got the vessels that were dedicated to the holiness of God, and you're drinking wine out of them as if you're some kind of God and sovereign, and you have been praising the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear, you know, because you're doing that. then he says, you want to know what this says? I'll tell you. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parsin. The King James says, ufarsin. And this is the interpretation. Many, God has remembered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Wow. Daniel, you need to win, uh, read the book of uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Well, Daniel was a spokesman for God, and he told the truth, and nothing but the truth. Your kingdom is brought to an end. Tico, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, look what happened. Then Belshazzar 
gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be ruler in the kingdom, uh, third ruler in the kingdom. I knew that didn't sound right. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Uh, this is a word for all rulers. You are being measured by God. And your biggest problem is not your accountability to the voters. Well, I wish that were true even. It's your accountability to God. Number three, God cares. He's not ambivalent to what's going on in Afghanistan or even America. God cares, but he also condemns. They will reap what they sow. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath. It's exactly what they deserve. And distress them in his deep displeasure. You're not getting any blessings out of this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a lot of applications of all of that, aren't there? And so when we think about what this means and what is happening here and what is going to do, what God is going to do, we need to kind of get the idea that God is not just taking a snooze in heaven and then every once in a while he wakes up. He's in control and he's sitting and he's watching and he knows everything that is going to be uh, happening and everything that is going on and everything that has happened. And um, there's an illustration of this in the book of Acts chapter 12, verse 21. And it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. You know, kings like that, so do presidents. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, apparently from the inside out, and breathed his last. And I love this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And folks, you know that's how it always is. The preaching of the word, the believing of the word, the delivering of the word, the witnessing of the word is never in vain. Never in vain. And it is going and doing his work and his truth is marching on. Let's wrap this up. Number four, God will replace his king will reign. These kings are just temporary. These who claim to be God, want to be God, rule like their God, they're just temporary. Their last day may be today even. We don't know. Not everybody gets to rule like Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II, who is the longest reigning monarch in British history. Not everybody gets to do that. Some, their reign is very, very, very short. God will replace these kings, these rulers, and their arrogance. His king will reign. But I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. 
Okay, let's take a real quick trip to Jerusalem and let's go to the Temple Mount. Let's go look at Zion. Ah, I don't see a king. What, what is God talking about here? Folks, listen, when God decrees something, when he says in the past tense, I have, we could say, already set my king on the hill. Well, even though he hadn't done it yet, in his mind, it's as good as done. And his mind always gets done what he thinks, what he plans. In other words, he's saying to us and to the rulers of the world, don't fret, my king is there. It's just a matter of time before you recognize it, a matter of time before you feel the effects of it. He could not be stopped from coming. We're speaking of Jesus here. He could not be stopped from the cross. When did the devil try to stop him from coming? Remember, he tried to wipe out the Jewish race in the book of Esther. That's one time. We'll just cut off the Messiah's bloodline, won't we? He uh, could not be kept from the cross. Remember how many times they wanted to stone him? Well, no, his hour had not come. He didn't come to be stoned. He came to die on the cross. He could not be kept in the tomb, no matter how hard the devil might try. He could not be kept from ascending to the right hand of God the Father. He could not be kept from sitting on the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning from heaven, and he can't be stopped from returning. This is all going to happen, and God says, in my mind, it's as good as done. And that's the way we need to think. That's the way we need to look at all of this. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, during the Civil War, he was going through a particularly hard time. His son had been wounded. His wife had died from a fire. And he wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat. A peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You know, we all say amen to that. But then he carries on with his thought process. And... I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what's that tell him now as he hears cannon fire in the distance and as he takes care of his severely wounded son, as a nation is divided and the outcome of the war is still in question? He does what you and I do. And in despair, I bowed my head there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. He was an avowed abolitionist and hated racism. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Boy, that's honesty. That's where we live. That's the nasty now. But then the Holy Spirit does something in his life. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Take heart, child of God. God doesn't panic, change or modify, he laughs. And God is not passive, but he is active, even if we can't see him. He controls and he limits all of these wicked, arrogant rulers. God cares, and he cares so much that he condemns them and their actions, and they will reap what they sow. And God will replace his king, and he will reign 
forever and ever and ever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's going to be a glorious day and a glorious time, and it may be a lot sooner than we think. But in the meantime, get this into your heart, your soul, get it into your spirit, and let it be the way you look at everything in life. Our God reigns, and God will do everything that he promises to do. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Thank you so much for watching. May the Lord bless you, and may he fill you with faith in his sovereignty, and may it impact you so much that you act and feel accordingly. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless.